Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Is Sinn Féin's current popularity on both sides of the Irish border, the fruition of decades of its left-wing campaigning paying off, or a conscious break from the past terrorist activities of Sinn Féin's arm wing, the IRA? How has Ireland's media responded and what part does Brexit play in renewed Irish Anglophobia? For over 40 years, Kevin Myers has been one of the most fearless and outspoken journalists in Ireland, but in 2017, he found himself effectively cancelled following a controversial article he wrote for the Sunday Times. In this podcast, Kevin talks about Sinn Féin's success and the narrowing spectrum of the Irish commentariat, in conversation with the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, and Simon Kingston, founder of the West Cork History Festival. Kevin Myers, we're in a situation where Sinn Féin is, according to the opinion polls, the most popular party in Northern Ireland. Uh, But perhaps even more remarkably, it's vying with Fine Gael tip-to-toe as the most popular party in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, Given Sinn Féin's long association with a terrorist organisation, how surprised should any of us be? I have to tell you that I'm very surprised, given the historical background, that Sinn Féin should have been um, as popular as it is. But this is the harvest that we are now reaping for the uh, capitulation uh, and the compromises of the peace process. It's far worse. The harvest is far worse than I, I was expecting. But I was expecting it to be bad because I knew if you compromise within Irish life on this issue of whether somebody is armed, if you say an armed organization is not an armed organization and tell you people that it is not an armed, young people in particular, that it is not an armed organization, they will come to see an equivalence between an organization that still has an IRA army council, that is to say Sinn Féin, and the conventional parties like Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. I didn't realize young people were going to be so gullible, but that's because I wasn't paying attention to what Uh, the reality of Irish education has been over the last 25 years, which mirrors the education in Britain. Continuity, uh, intellectual rigour, the the notion that somehow other education should be uh, a re-continuation of our traditional civilization That has been abandoned in Ireland, along with the abandonment of the values of the Catholic Church. So once you remove the moral core of a society, Once you remove the need for empirical evidence in the way you conduct your public life, then a a terrorist organization, which is unapologetic about the thousands of lives it it wasted in a futile futile war, that organization can present itself in exactly the same moral light as its uh, political rivals. And more than that, it can present policies that are unrelated to economic reality. So that uh, a year ago, Sinn Féin nearly came to power in Ireland based on a series of promises that were completely fantastical. There was going to be free housing, universal employment and low taxation for the ordinary people. This was a promise which ordinary people bought. And it is brought us to the point of catastrophe. A year ago, had Sinn Féin been a little bit more uh, clever with the, the way they distributed to their candidates, 
they could have been in government alone and had access to the files of the Garda Shikana, the Irish police force, the, the, the special branch files and army intelligence. There wouldn't have been a historical and contemporary document. There is no way that um, civilized life can remain intact on this island if Sinn Féin comes into power in, in Dublin. Well, uh, Kevin, you spoke a moment ago about the failings of the Irish education uh, system and young people uh, turning to Sinn Féin as, as a, a radical alternative to what's been you know, 10 years or more of, of economic difficulty uh, in Ireland. Uh, what, about the, what about older age groups, by which I mean uh, people over the age of 40 or so, people with an actual memory of the troubles and uh, uh, further on down, down uh, into people who are, who are more senior in age. Is there a softening towards Sinn Féin there as well, or should we see it entirely as a, as a youthful act of protest and rebellion? Your question is very good, because uh, that takes us to another factor in the, the growth of Sinn Féin, and that has been in the last decade, what's called the decade of centenaries. Many, many anniversaries of events from 1912 to 1922 are being commemorated in Ireland. And in, 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 in 2016, when the commemoration of the 1916 Rising took place, there was an enormous suspension of critical faculties and moral faculties. So that what we were promised would be a, a kind of equivalence, a, a generosity of memory. That's to say, we would look at the British dead and look at the Irish dead and not uh, confer one, a greater morality upon one heap of dead over another. That hasn't happened. Uh, in the 2016 commemorations, not one single Irish politician, not one, attended the memorial services for the, R the DMP, the Dublin Metropolitan Policemen, who, who were unarmed and who were murdered by insurgents in 1916. Not one politician turned up for the, the memorial services. And for the overall memorial services, for all the, the Crown dead, that means the British and the Irish who were doing their duty to the state, uh, only two politicians turned up um, for a united ceremony for the British and the Irish, just two politicians turned up, both of them government ministers, but no backbenchers turned up, no elected politicians from the rest of Ireland. So what was created was a, a soft focus view of Irish history. There was actually a regeneration of this soft focus sentimentalization of Irish history of 1966. And that was a prelude to the IRA war. Now, I'm the only person in, in this group old enough to remember 1966 and the war that began, but uh, the, the war that began, essentially began at the same time as my journalistic career. But the, the war that did begin was unquestionably related to the fevers unleashed by the 1966 commemorations. So commemorations have a tremendous power in Irish life. And uh, those of us, and that would include myself, who were hoping the commemorations this time round would not be a fuel to the Republican movement have been disabused. We know now that in fact, this is a rocket fuel that constantly regenerates Republicanism. And this time the IRA has been able to present itself as a force for peace, feminism, gender equality, homosexual rights, and so on and so forth. That's just a mask. Their, their real um, agenda has always been 
and it remains to overthrow the Protestant majority uh, within the Northern Ireland state, to overthrow their wishes to remain uh, within the United Kingdom and to incorporate that part of Ireland, uh, Ireland into a single Republican uh, uh, island. Well, I want to bring in Simon Kingston at this moment. Simon, you are, amongst other things, founder of the West Cork History Festival. Is it your sense that uh, the uh, amnesia that uh, Irish politicians have towards uh, what is often a shared Anglo-Irish past, particularly with regard to the Great War, uh, is, is a result of cowardice, political cowardice on their part, or is it actually that the history of Ireland has been so uh, misremembered, mistaught, selectively remembered uh, for a century now that this is just the inevitable consequence of a misunderstanding of uh, Ireland's own history? Well, I think it's certainly something that has been practiced for a very long time, a very particular kind of selective memory and selective amnesia. Uh, uh, and that's something that we've discovered in running the History Festival. And I should pay tribute to Kevin who came uh, and spoke not once but twice in the first year that we held the festival. And it was during the festival that the news came through of his, his effective uh, cancellation. Uh, and perhaps we'll talk about that a bit later. But I, it's not that there are not people who have been willing to be uh, brave in their accounts of the, the history of the revolutionary period. There has been an immense amount of excellent scholarship uh, and it carries on, um, on the, the real uh, experience that people had, the plurality of experience and the sense that um, there are communities that were part of the Irish experience then and continue to make up part of uh, Irish society on both sides of the border since, who don't conform to an easy account of, of uh, the Irish national character or identity and who don't share uh, the experience and the memories of the revolutionary period that became part of the foundation myth of the state. But it's extraordinarily difficult even for those courageous politicians who do want to uh, offer a more nuanced account to do so. Uh, and I'd be interested in Kevin's view on this. It seems to me that there were some strands to the 1916 commemorations that whilst imperfect were much more inclusive than had been the case in 1966. One thinks of the memorial at Glasnevin. One thinks about at least the public articulation of the fact that there were multiple fatalities, uh, both amongst those who were uh, members of uh, the, uh, the insurgent groups and the Crown and civilians who were trying to avoid uh, being caught up in it at all. Uh, so there was a movement towards something that was more inclusive, but that movement seems to have ground to a halt. And I'd be interested in Kevin's view on to what extent Brexit has provided a proximate and convenient sense uh, of a, a reason to be righteously indignant that has both prevented a continuation of any kind of inclusion uh, in commemoration along the lines that you were describing, but also re-legitimized um, an ease with which anti-British British sentiments can be uh, expressed in public. I mean, I, because it seems to me um, it has led to a sort of closing down of conversation 
about the awkward um, in the revolutionary period that is not wholly to do with historiography, to put it mildly. I'm grateful to Simon for reminding me of the Brexit dimension. It's something I should have mentioned earlier on. It is absolutely central to the mood in Ireland, which is more anglophobic um, than I can remember since perhaps Bloody Sunday. Uh, the, the kind of views that are uh, uh, offered on RTE, Irish radio and television, and in the Irish Times in particular, are not the kinds of views I thought would have thought possible in the 21st century. There's a sneering disdain for genuine emotions and genuine feelings in Britain, uh, that these emotions are either imperialistic nostalgia or they're illiterate. There is no acceptance of the possibility that there is a legitimate argument for why the, so many British people feel this way and a reasonable number of Irish people in Northern Ireland, Northern Irish Unionists, Northern Ireland loyalists wanted to leave the, the, the European Union. The idea that a vast number of people could be consigned to a moral scrap heap, either as uh, imperial nostalgics or as a literate uncouth lump from proletariat, it is the sort of th notion I didn't think existed anymore, but it is representative of the divisions that we are seeing everywhere across Europe and in, in, in the United States of America. If you voted Trump, you had to be a Yahoo. If you voted uh, for Hillary Clinton, you were a civilized human being and so on and so forth. And in the popular discourse, and I shouldn't have said popular discourse, in, in, in the mainstream media discourse, those people who voted for Brexit are uneducated or, or imperial nostalgics and are not worth dealing with as objects of respect. And the, 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 the level of disdain and hostility for English people in particular, in even the sports pages, is quite extraordinary. And I have to say, uh, completely outside what I would have expected. I, I would have thought after the, the, the visits between the heads of state in, in uh, 10 years ago, when the Queen came to, to Ireland, and it was a sensational success, they had to abandon or security protocols in, in Cork because her popularity was so great. There was almost hysteria in the country at the, 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 the coming together of the, 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 so much we have in common of the Irish and the British. We all know the, 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 the threads that interconnect the two societies and the two civilizations and the two islands. So given that start point of May, uh, 2011, when the Queen came to, to Ireland, to where we are a decade later, the changes have been almost cosmic. Every single prediction for 19, uh, for 2011, for the following 10 years, was of benign consequences. And no one would have said, and no one did say, that we would be in approaching a time of great anglophobia and great uncivility or incivility in Irish life, which has been a continuum since Brexit. And there's no sight, there's any mitigation of this. There are no politicians saying, well, we actually have to live with the British. They, they get, take 40% of our exports and we have a comparable import uh, deal from them. So that there is a mutual reliance here economically and culturally. We all know about the writers and the filmmakers and the actors and the actresses and so on and so forth. 
this isn't a complex subject. Subject. It's a very obvious one. Yet, even though it's it's simple and though it's very obvious, uh, it seems to evade the uh, the views of the opinions and the, the sight of commentators in Ireland. And and Kevin, as you reflect on that and the absence of any apparent end to that attitude in public life, what is your prediction? Is Sinn Féin in government, either alone or in coalition, inevitable? And might that prompt a crisis and a review of that current consensus? Or is there some other future that we might expect? Well, my predictions have been so appalling in the past that I don't think it's a reasonable question to present to me to, you know, to somehow or other, I can break an appalling track record <laughs> here to fall. Uh, the, the, the consensus in Irish life is that British are bad. The British Empire was bad. It is, was without any remedy. It is simply, the President of Ireland repeatedly was saying this in a number of occasions, in public occasions. He was talking about the horrors of the British Empire and how terrible the British Empire was, which not even many Indians would offer. Many Africans might not agree with that. The fact is that the, the Ireland is ruled by common law. If common law was so bad, then the Irish could have got rid of it. If the Irish really wanted to speak uh, the Irish language, they would be doing so. If they wanted to play Gaelic sports rather than rugby or soccer, uh, they would be doing so. All of these things haven't happened simply because a very large number of Irish people have accepted the importations of British legal and, uh, and culture and recreational culture and literary culture. These are part of, of the Irish life. So you would have thought, this being the case, that a larger and more generous view of what it is to British would also have been tolerated. That isn't the case. So the question was, would I predict a benign outcome. It's very difficult for me to do so, what that benign outcome might be, nor can I predict that. Can I predict uh, disaster? I have already, in the earlier stages of this interview, uh, predicted disaster if Sinn Féin come to power. It means that they will be in government in North and South. And they are unapologetic about the war that costs really about 4,000 lives. So many people have died out of sight, people who took their own lives in the subsequent years because of the troubles. So we were talking about a 4,000 life death toll for which the IRA and Sinn Féin family feels no contrition, no remorse, no public regret. Now this is unusual, mostly at the end of a war, people say, well, we shouldn't have done that, we shouldn't have done this. The, the British spent, was it 40 or 50 million on the Salvin Inquiry and the most fulsome uh, regrets and apologies, I have to say 40 years too late, then followed for the events of Bloody Sunday. But there has been no equivalent from the IRA, nor has there been any equivalent from the Irish government about the failure of its security policies from 1972 to 1997, which made the IRA campaign possible. The fact that the IRA had a bastion in South Armagh with an, essentially an open border into the Monaghan and Louth made the IRA's military task much easier and the British military task that much more difficult. There has never been any public acceptance of this point. Uh, Kevin, you've been making this point for three decades or more, uh, covering uh, the, the troubles extensively. I wonder for those who are uh, coming new to your work, uh, if you could say a little bit more about the conditions in which you had to operate uh, as a journalist writing 
on terrorist activities and follow that on through to discussing the, the political, sorry, the journalistic climate in uh, Ireland today, uh, how much of a mono uh, a monoculture it has become in your view or whether dissident voices are still tolerated at least at the fringe just to let your uh, listeners our viewers um, understand where I am coming from that, that I began to report on Northern Ireland 50 years ago and um, I was then a, a very young journalist in Belfast and I spent over a decade in Northern Ireland writing about the circumstances. Now, like many people, I was uh, extremely critical of British policy and would remain critical of British policy in the early years of the Troubles. It was a, a compound of ignorance and arrogance and many British soldiers I've spoken to um, acknowledge the, 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 the fundamental, often catastrophic errors of policy. That, that policy didn't last long, that viewpoint didn't last long, but it lasted long enough to do terrible damage to the relations between the national the nationalist minority and, and the British Army. And, and that damage was never seriously undone. And then it was compounded by a very skillful propaganda and by a, a gullible press. And I, at that time, much of that time, I would have been part of the gullible press. I, I look back on my early work in Northern Ireland with a great deal of criticism and, and um, unhappiness. But we grow up. And uh, we all of us have to acknowledge our errors, and I like to think I've acknowledged my errors, but, but I realized by the time I left Northern Ireland, the fundamental shift of responsibility for the troubles didn't lie in London, although London's ignorance of Ireland remains stupefying, but nonetheless, it's, it is not malicious. Uh, there is a great deal of malice and malevolence and, and, and psychopathy about Sinn Féin IRA's attitude towards the British and towards their fellow Irishmen and women in Northern Ireland, that is to say the Unionist bloc whose loyalty remains to Britain. So um, the, 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 the responsibility for the continuation of the troubles was Republican. Nobody else kept the war going, the IRA kept the war going, and it found a fairly hospitable base within the Republic to continue those operations. Had the government of the Republic seriously been um, intent on ending the IRA campaign, had there been a popular support for the ending of the atrocities, the unbelievable atrocities that went on through the 1980s into the 1990s, then the IRA campaign would have been halted. It wasn't halted. And nobody else can accept responsibility for that but the people of Ireland. And uh, this has been um, one of the great tragedies of the, the, the time, our time, that the media has, has not, or have not, whatever the correct verb is, um, looked at the moral responsibility of Ireland for the maintenance of, of, of the, the troubles. And the, 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 the second part of your question refers to the uniformity, the consensus which now um, governs Irish life. And I have in, in previous conversations compared it to life in Ireland in the 1950s, which you of course wouldn't have any memory of and nor would I. But it, we all know in Ireland what it was like. It was monotone. Everything was governed by the Catholic Church. All public ceremonial was governed by the, by the Catholic Church. The monotone today is of one of political correctness, of uh, Anglophobia, of a thin, narrow conceit, a green conceit, where Irish is naturally presumed to be superior to British. And this is the kind of attitude you had in Ireland in the 1950s, that Ireland, although it had banned 
by the early 1950s, mid-1950s, had banned 5,000 books. Ireland was seen to be a morally superior country to the bankrupt British. And that's a common perception in Ireland today, that Ireland is morally superior to, to Britain because Ireland is loyal to the new Holy Roman Empire of the European Union. So we switched, we leapt from the, the Holy Roman Empire of the Catholic Church to the new um, empire of the Treaty of Rome. And we are uncritical adherents, adherents to that empire, even though the bailout of a few years ago um, cost the Irish, uh, negotiated by, by and with the European Union, has cost the Irish people 35,400 euros per head of population, call that 30,000 pounds, per head of population, every man, woman and child. That's what we owe the world's banks for the bailout, negotiated by and with the EU. The EU screwed us and the Irish people nonetheless are devoted loyalists to the EU. There's not much you can do when you have this kind of dysfunctional, counterproductive loyalty. It's, it's intellectually um, insane that the, the uh, Irish people should be so devoted to the EU, which has done so much damage in the last two decades to the Irish side, to Irish, in particular since we joined the Europe. Uh, Simon Kingston, uh, Simon Kingston, uh, you're an Irishman who's spent much of his adult life in both Britain and Ireland. Uh, I wonder if you can unpick slightly, you know, uh, who has the um, more misplaced notion of the other, the, the British to the Irish or the Irish to the British? To me, and I think Kevin has mentioned this, that uh, the nature of the misunderstanding is is different. The, the British and before them, the English governments that had responsibility for Ireland uh, displayed a pattern of simply not paying enough attention. I, I mean, I, I agree with Kevin, Whitehall's ignorance of Ireland is stupefying even now. Uh, and one doesn't have to think very hard to recall secretaries of state for Northern Ireland for whom the correlation between religious denomination and political activity seemed to come as a surprise after appointment. Um, but it is, as Kevin suggests, largely ignorance. There is a pattern of, of active uh, disdain, but also loathing for, for, for Britain as a corporate entity that was part of the the official history of the, the Irish state in a very curious way, because although Kevin says this is something that's quite deeply ingrained in, in media discourse and, and public conversation now, and has been a pattern, this assertion of cultural superiority over the nearest neighbor for many decades, in individual life experience, and the individual's description of it, there is very often a fondness, not just of the British in general, but of the English in particular, in my experience, partly because the, any Irish family will have relatives, will have in Britain, will have had experiences that, that, that connect. Of course, they are connected through almost every facet of life, whether it's commercial or 
frequently, and here again, Kevin deserves credit, through association with the British military, uh, where in the early parts of the 19th century, before the famine, one in three British soldiers was from the island of Ireland in the 1830s. Um, so this is, this is not a narrow uh, sectional interest. This is something that informed Irish experience for several centuries, and individuals recall that. And individuals have been, uh, I think, persuaded to remember it explicitly in recent decades. Uh, but when they come to talk about political identity, it has proved extremely difficult, even for moderate uh, politicians south of the border, to provide an account of modern Irishness that doesn't take as its starting point a rejection of Britain, either Britain as it really was or Britain as it is uh, said to be in that in that account. And that the point that, that Kevin makes about recent discussions of Ireland and empire, I think is fascinating because on the one hand, there is an account of the experience of the British empire by Ireland that is that simply fits into that account of centuries of oppression, a straightforward story of Ireland being the, the laboratory for British imperial experiment around the world. Uh, and uh, on one reading, that is the case, but there's a much more interesting account of the imperial project or projects, which was indeed referred to by some of the historians at the president's most recent Mocknav 100, that I think of Eunan O'Halpin, I think of John Horn, who politely in the context that they were in touched on Irish participation, uh, active participation in the imperial project, whether as colonial administrators, as military leaders, or as missionaries, that is a possibility and, and, and maybe a way through this rather grim time of exploring the connections uh, that, uh, that, that link Ireland to Britain. Because at almost every turn, as you think about three centuries uh, of uh, British imperialism, the Irish are right in the heart of, of the administration of this, including, much though we might not like to admit it, in the grim and shameful episodes of the British Empire at the Amritsar massacre, Dyer, who orders the firing, is an Irishman, and O'Dwyer, the governor general of the Punjab, assassinated 20 years later, uh, is also an Irishman. So even in these moments which we would regard, uh, or which some people would regard, as evidence of the moral um, decay of the, the British Empire, the Irish are deeply involved. And, and that, I don't accept the reading that the British Empire is, is a systematic uh, exercise of oppression and racism. But even if one does, as an Irishman, you can't escape the fact that we were deeply involved uh, and uh, active and enthusiastic participants in that. Well, um, a question to both of you, and then just for the sake of time, we have to wrap up. But uh, 2020, 20, 2021 is the centenary of uh, Northern Ireland. How is it going to be, how is that celebration going to be commemorated in both the North and the South of Ireland? And how should it be commemorated? Well, I'll, I'll come in for here first. I, I, I have no idea how, uh, in the broader sense, the Republic of Ireland will 
do justice to the formation of the Northern Ireland state because there has been little evidence of charity in the perceptions of Britain in recent times and in the perceptions of that Irish extension of Britain, which is Northern Irish Unionism. We all know that the, the faults of, of the Northern Irish state as it came into existence, but it is worth remembering that in 1969, the people who led the um, campaign against for civil rights, the people's democracy and, and left-wing agitators had all been to university. They'd all been beneficiaries. They're working class Catholics, been beneficiaries of the welfare state that the Northern Ireland government had introduced equally and impartially for Catholics to enjoy. Unlike for a, a students in the Republic of Ireland, who to this day are still overwhelmingly middle class. You never hear, never hear a working class accent, a working class Irish accent in an Irish university, but you hear any number of working class Irish accents in Northern universities. And this, these are people from the Falls Road and, and, and Ballymurphy and Ardoin. So the Northern state was in the longer run far more generous to its uh, deprived and its unemployed and its, its working classes than was the Southern state. Here is a, 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 a perception that could be uh, shared with the, the, the peoples of all the island, uh, of the island um, by uh, the, the, the government of this Republic and by the political parties, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I think what you're more likely to get is a, a Sinn Féin triumphalism pointing out to the, uh, the atrocities that did occur in 1922, but they occurred all over Ireland. It wasn't a, a unionist thing all over Ireland and all over Europe, indeed, in Turkey and in Greece and in Finland and in the Baltic states. There were atrocities in the aftermath of the, of the Great War. If you want to be generous, you, you could say that the Irish experience was part of a reformation of Europe all across Europe, new states came into existence, many of them unsuccessful, like Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia, and the, the Baltic states went this way and that. So you could, you, you could posit the Irish experience within the context of Europe, but there's no evidence that a broader, more generous European view of Irish history is in the offing. In, in, in fact, quite the opposite seems to be more likely. And I think the the opportunity in the Republic to reflect on, on partition is one that might still be taken. I think the assumption is that Northern Ireland is an entity whose um, the day of whose end has come, as one might say, that it is inevitable that a sort of um, uh, some form of Irish unity will now take place. And the the discussion is really whether that should happen on a 50% plus one basis, which is clearly Sinn Féin's position, or whether a more consensual uh, union of um, hearts and minds sh should happen. And the Taoiseach Michal Martin and his Shared Island Initiative, I think is a genuine attempt to, to do some of the groundwork for that. The problem in the Republic is almost no thought has been given to what a united Ireland would be like. Um, what would the national anthem be? A united Ireland would be a much more British place than the 26 counties is. The idea that this will be a, a, a newly renovated house with a mad granny in the attic playing Elgar, as one person is, but it will not do. It will be a changed state. And I hope 
that the anniversary of uh, the foundation of the state of Northern Ireland um, would offer a chance for people in, in the 26 counties to reflect on that. What is it that we say we want and what would it be like? But I, I fear Kevin is right. I fear that, that um, both the generosity of spirit and the, uh, the, the careful reflection on what might now come is, a, is, is an opportunity that won't be seized. And north of the border, it was really, I, I thought, rather depressing, even to a, a, a hopefully reasonably dispassionate observer, that a modest memorial to the creation of Northern Ireland, which was going to sit in the grounds of Stormont and be paid for by private subscription, was supported by every party, including at the SDLP, except Sinn Féin. So, uh, as Kevin says, there, even the most painless opportunities to show a generosity of spirit appear to be missed by that party. Kevin Myers, your um, memoir of a life in conflict, Burning Heresies, is, is now published. Uh, perhaps you could say something about what it's been like being a, a journalist through the period not only of Ireland's troubles, but also uh, the post-troubles period as well. I set out when I joined the Irish Times in, in essentially 1980 to readjust, to correct the national Irish narrative about what it was to be Irish and what Irish history consisted of. And in particular, I, I was determined to ensure that the Irish soldiers of the Great War, who had been completely written out of any Irish history of the first half of the 20th century, should be restored to their natural place in Irish history. And I encountered a great deal of hostility both within the Irish Times and politically and socially, because it was this was heresy. This was quite unacceptable that anyone should say that hundreds of thousands of Irishmen and women had freely volunteered to serve in the British war effort in 1914-18 and um, hundreds of thousands again in, in 1939 to 45. That was a long uh, and often very bitter struggle for me to um, undertake, but it, it, it was in the longer run uh, victorious. And I was very pleased about that. Um, the interesting thing was that the narrative was then entirely acquired by the, the, the political forces which had um, rejected these people, these men and the women. And the ownership of, of, of this narrative, the recreated narrative, has been claimed entirely by the, 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 the political classes now uh, running Ireland. So that essentially what I did has, it has not been uh, publicly acknowledged. And in a way, in a strange way, uh, that complies and conforms very much with the, the way that Irish narrative has evolved, that there are the people who are politically triumphant, who will adventitiously pick up a, a, a tale that is worth telling and then claim credit for the rediscovery of it. And it is part of the, the process of, 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 we've mentioned at different stages, the lack of generosity in Irish life. It is an extraordinarily powerful um, feature in Irish life. And whatever Simon, Simon is right when he talks about um, the interpersonal relationships being very good, but um, the, the fact of the matter is that within the, the larger political collective view, uh, there is a lack of, of generosity. And I think I, in one sense, am uh, a victim of that because of I am perceived as an Englishman. Uh, 
I was born in, in Leicester, but my family were Irish, but I, I went to University College Dublin. But my accent betrays me as not being authentically Irish. And any, uh, any, anyone in the minority in Ireland, Irish Protestants, know that it's very difficult for Irish Protestants to convince Irish Catholics that they are as Irish as, as they are. So there is a kind of tradition of excluding in Irish life. And my, my, my memoir, uh, Burning Heresies, uh, deals with that exclusion. And um, it came catastrophically to a head um, in July, August, uh, 2017, on the, the back of a poor column. We should all be allowed to write poor columns about the, on this occasion, it was about the women's pay in the BBC. And I, 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 I pointed out foolishly but with no malice, whatever, and certainly no anti-Semitic intent, that the two best paid women in, in the BBC were Jewish. I attributed this to their chutzpah, to their good negotiating skills. I, 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 no, I complimented them, and it was a genuine compliment, a compliment the Irish Jewish community have accepted completely. And they, the, the few friends I had have been multiplied many, many times over by, by the support of the Jewish community in Ireland. But the, 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 the vital element to the ruination that fell upon my good name was the participation of a group of Guardian journalists led by Roy Greenslade, who is an avowed supporter of the IRA. And he tweeted that I was a Holocaust denier and an anti-Semite. Holocaust denier is just not worth talking about. The Jewish community said that I had told the Irish people truths about the, the Holocaust they would not otherwise have known. There was nobody in Ireland quite the opposite of being a Holocaust denier than me. Yet Roy Greenstade of The Guardian called me a Holocaust denier and worldwide ruin followed. It's not possible for me to describe in any format the, the level of destruction that was done to my name and the malice and malevolence that pursued me around the world so that everyone uh, joined in. Uh, Chelsea Clinton um, uh, joined in. Um, and so many, so many others joined in, so that it, it was it, it was a homegrown toxic weed within Republican circles in, in, in Ireland and within The Guardian, and it became incredibly successful to the point where if you Googled my name, the only thing you will discover is that an anti-Semitic Holocaust denier, which is a disaster and also misogynist. You put that trinity together and you've got an utterly unacceptable person. So that I have become the most cancelled person in Irish life, not the most cancelled person in the world. There are other people who can claim credit for greater cancellation than I've experienced. But in Ireland, no one has been comprehensive, as comprehensively cancelled as I have been. And you see this as um, Irish Republicans uh, and their um, cheerleaders in the Irish media, essentially this was their moment of payback to you for your 40 years of, or more of, uh, of writing trenchant criticism of uh, Irish Republican terrorism? I think the number of factors, I have been a long-term critic of, uh, uh, of political feminism as it has developed in Ireland. So they, that was lined up against me. Um, I'm anti-Republican uh, in all its manifestations uh, and that was lined up against me. And that I'm also, and here is the killer, I'm the most vocal support of Israel in the Irish media. And they were able to turn that into an allegation that I'm an anti-Semite. So I had enemies, but no friends. And when the lynch mob occurs, believe me, believe me, 
you'll see people you thought were your friends uh, scampering for cover. Uh, that of the, my wife and I got married, I'm quite late in life when I got married, one of my wife, wife, wife and I got married in 1996, we had about 140 people at our wedding. We never heard from about 70 of those at the time of the lynching. I did hear from Simon. I heard from uh, Simon and his friends in, in West Cork. And a lot of people I really didn't know, and I didn't know Simon all that well, who came forward, and the Jewish community in particular. But from, from journalists in Ireland, only two journalists stood up for me. The rest joined in the lynch mob of state silence. I was going to say, is there consolation of a kind in the revelation for what he is of Roy Greenslade now? And in particular, in Maria Cahill's uh, scrutiny and legitimate criticism of him in relation to her case. Is there, is there consolation of a kind for you in that? Simon, the, there would be consolation in the Roy Greenslade affair if it had been reported by the Irish Times and RTE but it hasn't been. If you read the Irish Times, you wouldn't know about the Roy Greenslade's disgraceful treatment of Maria Cahill, who was raped by an IRA man, and the IRA then covered this up. So the, I sued RTE for calling me a Holocaust denier. I won a major settlement. They settled before we went to court. I, they would have been destroyed in court, but that would have been five years down the line. They gave, came up with a major settlement, which I'm legally bound not to disclose to you. RTE never reported the settlement, nor did the Irish Times. The Irish Times News and RTE News never reported a major settlement on a major defamation case. So the Roy Greenslade case has never been reported by RTE, never reported by RTE uh, and the Irish Times, and the, 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 the Maria Cahill's um, vigorous attack on Roy Greenslade and The Guardian for their participation in their lies about her, and they, both organizations lied about me, that hasn't been reported by the Irish media. This is a, a, a dark era such as I have never known, but newspapers simply do not report news that they find unpalatable. RTE News doesn't report news it finds unpalatable. RTE had to settle on a large amount of money on me, had to issue an apology, and that apology was never reported by RTE News. The, 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 a settlement was never reported by RTE News, similarly by, by the Irish Times. So I, I, when the media in a society behave like Tass Izvestia and Pravda in the old Soviet Union, and when this happens volitionally, when people embrace consensual despotism without dissent, then you know the society in which this is occurring is heading for trouble. This is a society that has already embraced the falsehoods of Sinn Féin in government. Nothing that Sinn Féin in government will do would surprise the people of Ireland now because they're used to despotism, they're used to the consensus, they're used to the consensual lie that suits the needs of those telling the lie rather than the ordinary public who are not being told the truth. Well, we must leave it there, I'm afraid, but uh, Simon Kingston, founder of the West Cork History Festival, and Kevin Myers, whose latest book, Burning Heresies, A Memoir of a Life in Conflict, 1979 to 2020, is published now. Thank you both very much indeed. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.